All right. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Corey Worden. I'm the excuse me. I'm the administrator for the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty. And once again, you're listening to the ASSP Health Beat podcast. So today we have an exciting episode. We're going to be talking more about emergency management. And today we have Amber Johnson, who is a certified emergency manager and an emergency manager with a top tier healthcare system here in Texas. So Amber, we appreciate you being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Corey, and I'm glad to be here. Cool. Thank you. All right. Well, to get started, if you would, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, you know, how you got here in terms of school and certifications, some of your past experiences, um, whatever you'd like to share. We appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I have spent um, over 10 years in the emergency management field, uh, with the majority of that being in the healthcare sector and a couple years outside of the healthcare sector. I hold a bachelor's degree in emergency and disaster management and also a master's in public administration. Um, I, like you said, I'm a certified emergency manager through the International Association of Emergency Managers. And um, like I said, I've spent the majority of my career in healthcare, so I'm very excited to speak about that today. Great, thank you. That's fantastic. You know, it's within safety and emergency management, there's kind of a rarefied group of us that that have been working in healthcare in particular, so it's always great to, to share knowledge between us. So we're glad you're here. So with that, um, Tell us a little bit about your current role in terms of um, what you do now in terms of your organizational placement and your daily activities and and your emergency response role. Sure. So I currently run uh, the emergency management program for a large healthcare system in um, Houston, Texas. And in my role, I oversee um, around 45 uh, what we call emergency preparedness officers. And those are individuals uh, typically who are other duty as assigned. And they are stationed at the various hospitals and entities such as ambulatory services and other outpatient services that we have within the system. Uh, we have several acute care hospitals, a very robust rehab network, um, our own home health um, care entity as well, and a skilled nursing facility that has an assisted living facility apartment building as part of it. And so in my role, um, I provide the overall program directives and the guidance um, on how we will uh, work individually based on those individual um, hazards for their patient population as well as their geographical location uh, throughout the city of Houston, and then also how we respond as a system to those incidents that require a whole system response like the current pandemic um, that we've been in for the last uh, 12 plus months. Um, I have a corporate team as well um, that consists of a medical director who is an emergency uh, department physician uh, who also has a background in uh, emergency management response in the healthcare system. I have a emergency management coordinator and also an emergency management planner. And as a team, as a corporate team, we also lead the corporate command center response for any large scale incident. Um, so we we have a lot of work that we do um, as far as exercising and planning with that being the majority of our work across the system and then also ensuring that all of our campuses and all of our entities are compliant with the various emergency management regulations from um, CMS, from CARF, 
uh, from the state, and then also um, our accreditation standards of Joint Commission, and so a lot of our work surrounds that as well. That's great, great, thank you, great information. So within that, you know, emergency management, you've got all your planning and your preparedness, and then you've got your actual response and, and recovery. So in terms of that, how do you know when it's time to go from the planning and preparedness to the response aspect? Like how does that, you know, how does that red flag go up and what does that look like? Right. So uh, as you said, emergency management is very much a secular process where we're constantly in one of those four phases of mitigation, preparedness, response, or recovery. Um, and sometimes those overlap, especially if we're dealing with smaller incidents in the context of a large one. Uh, this current pandemic is a very good example of that where we were in a long-term activation in a response mode to this pandemic. But in the middle of that, we also still had smaller incidents such as a few mass casualty incidents. Uh, we had hurricane season and a few very close calls um, in the Houston area uh, with a direct impact from a tropical storm. So um, sometimes it overlaps, but we try to keep it as much as possible, uh, more of a linear and cyclical process. So um, when we are working in mitigation, our main concern is how do we put measures in place, uh, processes in place that directly impact the effect of any type of hazard or any type of incidents to our healthcare system. Um, and for me, I personally feel that that is the most important um, step in the emergency management cycle because I feel like that's our one opportunity to have a direct impact um, on the level of impact and we're able to decrease um, our, our um, any kind of negative consequences of that hazard. Um, if we're not in mitigation, we're in our preparedness phase, and that's typically if there is a imminent or foreseeable threat in the near future. So hurricane season is another good example of that. It's something that is on a calendar year cycle. We know that hurricane season runs from June to November, and so we very quickly move into a preparedness mode around the March-April timeframe, anticipating that our level of risk is going to increase for any type of tropical weather impact beginning in June. And then of course the response, which can be something like that, where we know um, in advance at least a couple of days that something is going to impact us. Um, or it can be a no notice event, such as a large bus crash on the freeway. Um, and we have to very quickly mobilize resources and respond to that incident. Um, and as far as recovery is concerned, we're always thinking about how can we quickly get into our normal operations. That's where we want to be. And so even while we're responding to the incident, we're also trying to put measures in place to return to normal operations as quickly as possible. And that's very important for us in the healthcare system because um, any type of disaster, any type of incident can impact our, our quality of patient care. And so that is something that we want to very quickly be able to, um, to respond to, to rectify the situation and be able to provide that patient care to our community as quickly as possible and maintain that quality level of care as well. Great, thank you. Thank you again, it's great, great information. I know a lot of times, a lot of times emergency management and, and safety for that same reason, they get looked at in terms of acute incidents, you know, 
whether it be response to a response to a um, like a hazmat release or a or a major incident, you know, such as 9/11, and a lot of times it doesn't get looked at in terms of that long-term response, where you get into the you know the extended response phase and the long-term recovery and reconstitution. So within safety, you know, we have the same thing where it's not just a matter of being able to being able to respond to something, but then we have that long-term root cause analysis to figure out what the long-term preventative measures are going to be. So a lot of times it's definitely much more than than the you know onlooker can see. So we appreciate that. That's great information. So within that, you know, of course you've got that you've got that response phase and that recovery phase, but then you've also got a lot going on, like you said, with your emergency preparedness officers and everybody that works on these things on a daily basis. So what kind of things are y'all working on, you know, pretty much we'll say on a daily basis when there's not a, a major situation, even though of course, you know, there's there's been no shortage of major situations for the last year, of course. But what what would y'all say you're you're doing during during peacetime, so to speak? <laughs> Absolutely. Um so the last homeless, like you were uh, alluding to, probably wouldn't be the best example because unfortunately we have been in a long-term uh, response mode, something like I've never experienced in, in my career this far, um, where the majority of our day today, nine to five, if, if you will, um, is response. Um, we're ebbing and flowing with the, the surges that we've had here in Houston and then any new um, concerns that we have from COVID. And so that that has been something that we're constantly having to change our processes and our policies around. Um, if I look at where we were back in April of 2020 to where we are now and the amount of, of um, changes that we've had to do and sometimes very quickly within a matter of hours, um, because this is new, this is something that we, even our pandemic planning um, didn't necessarily account for. Um, so we have spent, I would say, nine to five. Most of our uh, items in the last 12 months have been responding to COVID-19 and trying to fit in normal operations or peacetime, as you called it, um, into those tasks as well. Pre-COVID, uh, a lot of our time nine to five was spent um, in that preparedness and that mitigation phase um, or the downtime, knowing that we're eventually going to have to um, respond to something. And so uh, we would normally look at our incidents for the previous year, the previous two to three years, um, what was going on in the world, what was going on here locally in Houston, um, from a sociological perspective, from a geographical perspective, um, whether that be a man-made incident, like a rise in active shooter incidents, or um, a, a geographical issue or a topography issue, like the um, catastrophic flooding that we started experiencing several years ago here in Houston that was a relatively new um, occurrence, but very quickly worked its way up to one of our top um, hazards that we need to respond to. So uh, we see that as our opportunity and our time, um, kind of the calm before the storm, if you will, that we can do what we can to make our healthcare system disaster resilient um, and be able to put those measures in place so we can react quickly and efficiently when we need to, when that hazard becomes a, a incident that we need to respond to. Definitely, definitely. No, I, I totally agree and, and hear you about that in terms of the, you know, the consistency of how things have gone for the last year 
and how everything kind of builds up to that, you know, within our, you know, I work in safety within public health. And so a lot of the things that we've seen, like y'all, is that, you know, it's, we have the response to the pandemic, you know, so that includes, of course, testing and vaccinations and epidemiology and everything else in that scope. But then within that, we've also developed, you know, plans and executional procedures for things like hurricane shelters and cold weather shelters and all these different things that not only have their own hazard analysis, but then we've also got to do that while accounting for, you know, exposure prevention from COVID-19 at the same time. So a lot going on there. And to your point, you know, that also applies to all the long-term planning and mitigation and, and professional development. You know, in y'all's case, you've got your EPOs. You know, in my case, I've got the safety committee and we have all of our, you know, safety representatives. So the more we can teach them and the more we can increase their professional knowledge, then they're much, much more able to work in that context when it happens. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> so the last thing we'll talk about today, um, so we've talked a lot about response and the kind of situations that lead to that. We've talked about the planning and mitigation and how you work through those things in the long term and that goes into that cycle. So when these things happen, you build that, that ICS construct. You know, so you've got your, your planning and operations and you've got your logistics. And then part of that command staff, you've got your safety officer. So as we know, of course, safety officers, you know, it may range from somebody that was, you know, asked to kindly volunteer for that role all the way to someone that does safety as a career. You know, so in our case, we have a lot of members who do safety as a career, but this may be their first time that they've been asked to be on a ICF, excuse me, ICS construct. So when someone shows up and says they're going to be your safety officer, so what are some things that you're looking for in that person and some different attributes and, and skill sets that you'd like to see there? Absolutely. Um, and I think too that it depends on the level of the incident command structure that they find themselves in. So whether that's a facility-based incident command structure where they're boots on the ground and more of a tactical approach or the corporate command structure where they're more concerned with overall processes and policies um, surrounding safety and incident response. Uh, for the first, for the campus level or the boots on the ground level, um, definitely the ability to be adaptable um, and able to look at the situation and think of how do we ensure that our first responders, our staff, our employees are able to maintain their personal safety during this incident. Um, because if there's something that happens to us, we can't care for the community, we can't take care of that patient. So first and foremost, it's important that that staff member, that healthcare provider uh, is able to remain safe while responding to the incident. Uh, we have the, um, in healthcare, we have the plus side of being able to be the first receivers and not necessarily um, on the scene, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a level of risk that comes from the outside inside to the facility once responding to an incident like a mass casualty incident or um, mass casualty resulting from an active shooter incident where there could still be some type of imminent threat um, and we have to lock down the hospital. So um, that would be something that I would look for from a tactical perspective. Um, is their ability to ensure how is this healthcare worker going to make sure that they are safe 
and they are able to safely perform that patient care so we can continue to provide those life-saving um, capabilities that we need to for the community, especially um, in that type of environment. Uh, from a corporate perspective, it surrounds more with the policy and processes of the incident. And being able to apply as a professional safety um, professional, you understand the basic fundamentals of safety and how you're able to apply that to whatever type of incident that we're dealing with. Um, COVID-19 is a very good example of that because then we're talking about um, safety as far as infection prevention, um, making sure that you're not contracting the virus or passing it on to others. Um, and that's something that we're very concerned with, with this, uh, this response. Um, and also being able to understand that we are in a disaster environment. And so the, the safety tactics that you may use as a professional in a nine to five environment are going to be different when we're talking about disaster response. You're working in the unpredictable. Um, you're working in an environment that is unstable um, and chaotic and fast moving. And so being able to recognize that and working within the, um, I guess you could say constraints of that as a safety professional, understanding that it's not going to be a, a perfect solution, um, but understanding that we still need to maintain safety first and foremost, even though we're in this volatile situation um, and that we will look to you as that individual and that subject matter expert to be able to help us ensure even though we're in the middle of chaos, that we can continue to maintain that level of safety for our staff, um, for our patients, and for anyone else who is in our campus, such as visitors, uh, during that incident. Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree on that. You know, you're actually right, you know, simpatico with my thoughts is, on one hand, you know, we have the tactical response, which would be you know, in a lot of cases, that's where you have that, you know, that on-scene response. And so within that, of course, we have to be able to make sure that we're doing things as safely as possible within feasibility for that response. Because number one, like you said, if we don't do it safely and the people that are working on the response end up being either exposed, injured, or ill, then we're not able to respond anymore. And then the second thing is that we we can't go to the point where we say, well, it's it's intrinsically inherently unsafe, so we're not going to respond at all because the outcome for not responding is going to be potentially catastrophic and much worse than the hazards from the response itself. So we have to balance that. You know, that's difficult at times, but being able to make sure we have it as safe as possible while being able to execute the response that mitigates the overall risk level, you know, especially to the general public, that, that's huge. Um, right. And, so and I think a lot of us get into this career field, um, whether that be safety or emergency management, and especially with the healthcare system being a clinician, because you want to be that individual who runs into the danger to help others. Um, but I think a really good visual of the importance of safety in that environment is when you're on an airplane and they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first before you help the individual beside you. Because if you're not okay and you're not functional, you can't do good for anyone else. 
Um, and I think that's hard for us to remember because we go into that response mode and that tunnel vision that we, we need to do. This is our time to, to work and to help and to do what we can to help as many people as we can in this situation. And I think that safety officer serves as a constant reminder that if we don't put that oxygen mask on, like you were saying, we're not good to anyone and we won't be able to, to do the good that we wanna do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's, I would, I would supplement your, your comments, which are very important, very valuable. I would also say because of that, you know, something that I always encourage safety advisors and safety officers to be cognizant of is that, you know, because we're in that role, a lot of times we kind of end up a little bit isolated and we end up in that position where, you know, we're saying things that, you know, they're intended to keep people safe and to mitigate the overall, you know, possible severity of their response. But a lot of times people will take that as, you know, we're we're trying to um, trying to become an obstacle or trying to in inhibit something, but um, being able to make sure we articulate while we're making those assessments and while we're giving those protocols, you know, that's very important. So those communication skills, you know, definitely um, definitely imperative. Otherwise, you know, people could easily misconstrue these things, and and if they if they don't if they don't take it for the uh, you know the value added advice that it is, then if they, if they don't use it at all, then of course that increases the risk. <clears throat> Absolutely, um, completely agree. Yeah, um, then the other thing I was gonna say, I, I totally agree with what you're saying as far as the, you know, the corporate construct, when you're not talking about the on the scene response, but you're talking about the, the overall, you know, mitigation, whether it be organizational or, um, you know, at a, at a level in the government or a coalition or whatnot, is that it becomes that it becomes that overall risk management picture where you're not only looking at, you know, in terms of the immediate safety, but also being able to figure out, you know, what are the consequences if we do this, what are the consequences if we don't do this, and then what are all those individual components, you know, such as not only personnel, but also the logistics and sustainability and you know possible environmental effects and all these different things that come with that so you know everything has a everything has a potential you know outcome good bad or indifferent and so being able to see all that at once you know is, is very important there so it's not always you know not always just avoid being um, avoid getting sick or avoid getting burned or avoid getting you know cuts and scrapes but it may also be um, you know, we can make this as safe as possible right now, but then what happens if we, what happens if we don't do the response? So we may have, you know, we may have mitigated this situation, but then we made this other one much worse or, um, or possible environmental contamination, or we run out of logistics and then we can't sustain the response, you know, things of that nature. So all very important. I think it's important to to remember that even though you're in a disaster response situation, that those nine to five um, organizational processes and policies and and um, culture that um, that make your healthcare system a successful um, patient centric 
um, healthcare system still apply even in the middle of a chaotic disaster situation. And I feel that personally safety is one of those foundational elements that if you do not put that um, as an important vital part of the response and the overall arching response from a corporate perspective, um, you're setting yourself up for um, a lot of negative consequences um, while you're responding to that incident. And so you can't just throw those things out of the window because we're in this you know, very acute response mode um, that if you're not going to do um, all the normal things you would in your organizational context, um, that you're not going to be effective in responding to, to an incident. So safety is extremely important. Uh, we push it from a nine to five perspective, we should be pushing it just as much, if not more, uh, during a disaster situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll last thing I'll I'll throw out there, I I'm curious at your thoughts on this. One of the things that I always articulate whenever I'm either doing training or a lot of times in presentations where I'm talking about, you know, the work I've done and the research I've done is I always talk about the, you know, the relativity, if you will, of, you know, frequency and severity. So if we're talking about safety, you know, a lot of times safety hazards are extremely frequent, you know, they're all the time, whether it be, you know, things like uh, patient handling or especially right now, you know, disease exposure prevention, or if we're talking about, um, workplace violence it may be something as simple as you know a patient taking a swing at a nurse things of that nature but then you've also got things that are much more severe whether it be workplace violence such as a active shooter or whether it be um or a targeted attack or whether it be a an outbreak that's not so much the scale of COVID-19 but you may have something like Ebola that's it's a much smaller but much more, um, much different in, different in context and optics, if you will. You know, the difference between a between a SARS versus a you know hemorrhagic fever. So obviously, these things, you know, they may be very constant, very frequent. And in terms of severity, it may be very high severity to the individual, where you know it may cause someone to lose time from work, or or it could be a lot worse. But in terms of the organization the severity might be a lot lower, meaning that it may be very, may be very severe and harmful to the individual employee, but it's not going to shut down the operation or the organization. But if the frequency goes down to something like a visitor safety issue, then the severity may be higher because now we're not only talking about employees, but now we're also talking about visitors and possible litigation and things of that nature and media coverage and reputational damage. And then we go up the scale a little bit more. Now we have lower frequency with something like an infection control issue, but we have much higher severity because now we're not only talking about employees and even visitors, but now we're talking about the possible general public being involved where we have an outbreak, whether it be, you know, something like we had in the past with, you know, bird flu, swine flu, um, things of that nature, or we have, like we have COVID-19 now. And then, of course, if we don't contain that, then the severity goes up to the highest level where we have much less frequency. You know, for in terms of COVID-19, this is the first time since 1918. But the severity is just as high as it can get because not only does it affect employees and visitors and the general public, but now it affects the economy and it shut down the whole country. You know, so we have the highest level of severity. 
So being able to mitigate these things at the lowest level when they're high frequency but low severity, that's what keeps us able to respond to the point where we don't have to get up to the highest level uh, where that emergency management construct is so vital. Um, so in terms of that, um, do you have any, any, any thoughts on that in terms of being able to handle those things at the lowest level so they don't escalate? Uh, absolutely. There's actually a, um, a framework in emergency management where we, we operate from the perspective that disasters start local. Um, and it's very much in line with what you were just stating from a safety perspective, um, that what happens at the, the local level or the individual level um, has a cascading effect uh, to the rest of the organization. And I think it's very important from a corporate perspective to recognize that. Um, as you were saying, the impact to the individual may be more severe than the impact to the organization initially, but the more that we have these occurrences, such as staff exposure from COVID-19, it very quickly becomes a cascading incident um, and impacts the entire organization. So I think it's important that um, we understand it's important to push those safety messages um, in every situation, whether or not the impact is more to that individual or to the organization. Um, and COVID-19 is a very good example of that because if we started laxing on our safety protocols or we did not take any um, take it serious enough, we could very quickly find ourselves in a situation where we don't have enough staff to be able to um, properly respond to the incident. Um, and that very quickly becomes an organizational issue. Uh, so I think as far as frequency and severity, I find that as this may be a little bit um, digressing from that question, but I find the frequency and severity construct interesting because the majority of the incidents that I've at least responded to in the past 10 years have been incidents that were the severity was acute, um, but the frequency isn't necessarily, such as COVID-19 or Hurricane Harvey, um, where these are, or the winter weather storm is another really great example. These are incidents that when we go to do that hazard vulnerability analysis are not necessarily on the top, you know, two, three, maybe even 10. Um, on an annual basis, but when they occur, the impact is so severe um, that we find ourselves in a very tricky, for lack of a better word, situation. Um, so I think that as we look to our, how do we prepare, how do we mitigate, that we also need to understand, could, like you say, could this happen again? It hasn't happened since 1918, um, that we've had this level of a pandemic. It could happen again, but we also need to understand that if it did happen again, the level of severity that would be associated with that um, and that we need to take that into account on our annual planning and our annual preparedness measures um, and not necessarily just the incidents that we have happen more frequently, but also the level of severity, as you were saying, um, needs to be taken into account because this has shown us how quickly um, our healthcare infrastructure can be um, possibly compromised in this type of situation. Um, Hurricane Harvey was another good example of that, and the winter weather storm was another good example of that. Um, so we're now trying to run parallel paths, if you will. Uh, what are those incidents, such as hurricanes, that we know uh, we have 
frequent um, occurrences of versus something like a pandemic or a winter storm that may happen in the next, you know, 5, 10, maybe 15, 20 years, but the severity of the impact is so acute that we need to ensure that we're also running a parallel path of how do we put those all hazards measures in place that we can respond to a, a hurricane with these measures, but we can also take those and adapt them um, to these less frequent incidences and we're able to um, bring down the severity of that incident if it occurs. And definitely, definitely. And yeah, in terms of that all hazards approach, you know, that would be the same thing as what we look at with, you know, safety management systems, whether we're talking about, you know, the hazard analysis, like you said, you know, the, the dichotomy between, you know, everything from you know, slip, trip, fall, all the way, you know, to, you know, meteor strike, you know, in some, in some context, we want to look for whatever may potentially happen. And um, then from there, we can figure out what the controls are going to be, whether it's proactive and reactive. And then, of course, the communication, the leading indicators to validate that we're being as safe as possible and as prepared as possible, then the lagging indicators to measure anything that's gone wrong and figure out why and then how to prevent that from reoccurring. So definitely same, same lens, just a um, little different as far as the, as far as the context, but uh, Amber, it's great information. We sure appreciate you being here today. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we, before we sign off today? Uh, thank you, Corey. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak about this. Um, I think healthcare emergency management, a lot of times uh, when you speak about it, you think about, um, as casualty incidents or something related to patient care. And I'm really glad to be able to speak about how the impact of other disasters have on our ability to provide patient care and how important it is for us to be able to, um, to plan and to mitigate against those threats um, that I think hospitals and healthcare in general, um, it's a bit of a comfort zone for, for most people that that's something that is always going to be available and always going to be um, available if you need it, if you have any type of uh, health emergency. Um, and we have to, as emergency management professionals and as safety professionals, um, recognize that in order to provide that constant patient care for the community, that we have to understand the impact of uh, non-healthcare related incidents such as um, hurricanes or winter weather, uh, flooding, um, and how they affect our ability to do patient care. So thank you, Corey. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on and speak with you today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're always welcome here. And to our to our listeners, of course, um, like Amber was saying, you know, these things all impact, you know, our ability to provide, at the end of the day, to provide patient care. And healthcare services, you know, so that of course applies to, you know, like safety, emergency management reaches out to all parts of the organization. You know, we have representatives, we want to do professional development. And so within safety and occupational health, you know, the more that we're able to reach out and get people to where they're able to understand how these things work and able to, you know, exponentialize that information and those skill sets, the better. So all that enables us to continue to do our, to provide our services. But uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and sign off for today, but uh, we hope to hope to catch you all on our next episode, which will be coming soon. It'll be with Dr. Amber Mitchell, and we'll be talking about needle stick 
Sharps injury prevention and also bloodborne pathogen exposure prevention and body fluid exposure prevention, which are all very relevant this day and age. So we'll be talking about that real soon. And then of course, there'll also be a lot of webinars coming up. So if you're interested in checking those out, we have a webinar coming up on May the 14th with Sean Galloway, and that's gonna be on leadership and culture change within safety. And then the next one is gonna be on June 25th, which will be on, on emergency management, speaking of, and that's gonna be with Todd DeVoe, who is a CEM and also the host of the EM Weekly podcast. So we hope to catch you on those. And of course, as always, if you have any questions, concerns, or requests, um, please feel free to reach out to us. We're available on the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty website or the ASSP Community Boards. Or of course, you can also find us on LinkedIn or our brand new Twitter account, which is at ASSPHCPS. And feel free to reach out to us anytime and feel free to check out all of our resources on there, including our new healthy publication and all the replays for the podcast and webinars. So thank you very much, and we will talk to you real soon. Have a great day.